0: I'm Eileen Dunn, and this is the God Slot. As Pope Francis prepares to bestow the red hat on 19 new cardinals tomorrow, the UK's Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg has accused one of those new cardinals, Archbishop Nichols of Westminster, of exaggerating when he claimed the safety net of the welfare system had been stripped away. Amid fresh warnings by 26 Church of England bishops about a national crisis of hunger, the Deputy Prime Minister admitted there was incompetence in the benefit system but suggested religious leaders were overplayed the impact of welfare reform on poverty. In Denmark, the Ministry of Agriculture declared that animal welfare takes precedence over religion when a ban on ritual slaughter came into effect this week. There were immediate accusations of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia from Jews and Muslims, even though both communities are still free to import meat killed by their preferred methods, and even though no animals have in fact been slaughtered without pre-stunning in Denmark for the past ten years. An email purporting to come from Father Tony Flannery of the Association of Catholic Priests claiming that he's in Cyprus and in need of money is a hoax and should be ignored. Meanwhile, in the US, an 84-year-old nun was handed a 35-month jail term on Tuesday for breaking into a US nuclear weapons plant and daubing it with biblical references and human blood. Sister Megan Rice was sentenced alongside two co-defendants, Greg Borcha Obed, who's 58, and Michael Wally, 64, who both received 62-month terms. Sister Megan is a member of the Society of the Holy Child Jesus. We asked for an interview with a representative of that society and while unwilling to go on air, the American province leader mary Ann Buckley provided us with this statement. The
1: Society of the Holy Child Jesus is deeply saddened by the severity of the court's sentencing for Sister Megan Rice, SHCJ. While the society respects the judicial process and the court's decision, we had hoped and prayed that Sister Megan's age, health, and decades of service would have been considered. She has dedicated her life to helping others and working towards a more just, compassionate and harmonious world. Sister Megan and two others engaged in a peaceful protest, offering prayer for the thousands who have lost their lives as a result of nuclear weapons. Sister Megan was convicted of trespassing and defacing government property, and intending to harm national security at a federal-enriched uranium facility in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. As a 167-year-old community of Catholic women, the Society has a history of standing up for those in need. We are committed to helping women, children and families by providing educational, spiritual and social programmes across four continents. We will continue to stand by Sister Megan and the Roman Catholic Church's teachings against nuclear proliferation. With the Church, we believe that nuclear weapons are incompatible with the peace so desperately needed throughout the world.
0: That reaction to the jailing of Sister Megan Rice came from the American province leader of the Society of the Holy Child Jesus, mary Ann Buckley. Now here in Ireland, a Belfast man has become the first doctor to be co-opted onto the International Medical Committee of Lourdes. He's Dr Michael Moran and he joins us now from our Belfast studio. Michael, congratulations, that's some gig. Before we discuss your new appointment, tell us a bit about yourself and your work in Belfast.
2: Um, Currently, I'm a clinical research fellow in Queen's University, Belfast, also working in the Belfast Trust as an ear, nose and throat surgery registrar. So I'm still... In a period of ongoing training to become a consultant surgeon with an interest in head and neck cancer. So I was involved in Lourdes through working as a volunteer, first as a young person, and then became a doctor who travelled Lourdes in pilgrimage. And then I have to say, this all came very much as a surprise. I think it's really important to emphasise that the committee's purpose is to be a medical and a scientific body that meets to discuss really the medical aspects of people who claim to have had an unexpected cure. So we can't, as a medical committee... Um, call anything a miracle as such although that's obviously the, the common word that people would use in terms of things associated with lured in terms of you know, sudden health improvements but strictly speaking we would call them unexpected cures that then become investigated and become either then a confirmed cure or really the medical evidence is insufficient to make a judgement on it in which case then the, the case would be closed
0: Well are we allowed to ask you are there ongoing cases at the moment that the committee is looking at
2: there are, yes. Um, now, because of the stringency of it in terms of medical science, it's you know we're very much a committee that has to be absolutely robust in everything we do. So people would probably be surprised to know how few verified cures there have been. Um, it was only in 2011 the committee voted um, that there was an unexplained cure, or confirmed cure for a, a patient or a lady from Italy, uh, Danila Castelli. And she was only the 69th from the shrine. And when you consider the first apparition was in 1858, um, that's a fairly long time period without a huge number of cures. So the, the process itself takes years. So in essence, um, the, the cure must also be demonstrated to be permanent. So at the meeting, we would discuss cases that are kind of open and ongoing and even it was brought up that a gentleman who is Italian who actually has quite strong links to uh, Ireland called Victor- Vittorio Micheli, who had a sarcoma of the pelvis he um, is now at a time point where he's 50 years beyond his cure that was unexplained and is you know still alive and well and so we sort of thought that maybe deserves some special recognition because of the duration of um, the cure and also his longevity.
0: Well, come back to Danila Castelli, Mm -hmm. that 69th confirmed miracle, if you like. Her Mm -hmm. case took over 20 years to bring to fruition.
2: It did, it did, yes, because when you see the sort of the news releases and things, and she's now a lady in her 60s, you know, you assume that this is something that would have maybe happened last year or the year before. But as you say, it was um, 1989. And really that kind of ties in as well with the idea that as a committee, we have to be absolutely... um, precise in the evaluations but also uh, confident in our decisions that when we say something is medically inexplicable it, it truly is and that's becoming increasingly difficult because you know we can now do sort of more sophisticated medical imaging tests diagnostic tests and things and we have to be able to be sure that the disease is actually absent as opposed to in remission so in her case she had at the age of 34 developed very high blood pressure which was unresponsive to any medical treatment which is a key feature of what we would consider to be an unexpected cure Um, and she had a basically a tumour of her adrenal gland that was secreting high amounts of things like adrenaline and basically keeping her blood pressure high. I have to say I wasn't part of the committee at this time so I'm talking you know about the work that went before my involvement but she'd had multiple surgeries and things like that that hadn't made her better. But in Lourdes in 1989, she was on pilgrimage and she was in the baths and was immersed in the baths and immediately having got out, she felt extraordinarily well all of a sudden. Now, having high blood pressure wouldn't necessarily give you a feeling of, of unwellness, but she certainly described that she felt that some change had overcome her. And then she presented herself to the Medical Bureau of Lourdes, which is a really a critical part of the process because... We really may not be catching everybody who does feel that they've had a, a medical improvement. And w- so what she did was at least start the process off. Um, and in such a case, all doctors who are present and Lourdes, whether they're, you know, Catholic, other Christian denominations, whatever religion they may be, they're convened to the medical bureau to do an initial evaluation of the patient to see whether there's anything to substantiate f- further work.
0: And that would be just doctors who happen to be there at the time?
2: Yeah, it's it's doctors who go at the time and what the medical bureau requests of us as as ordinary practitioners there is to sign in with the medical bureau and notify them of our presence and also it's an important documentation of the different specialty groups that are there so from my point of view if I sign in as an ENT person if there's something specific to ENT then they would definitely make sure that there was an ENT specialist involved and that would be the same for other specialties.
0: Now as a doctor where do science and religion either cross lines or part company in relation to all of this?
2: I I think that's it's a sort of a personal question in the sense that I believe in Lourdes and the spiritual aspects of it and the religious aspects of it. And in terms of the medical committee, it's it's important but difficult to put that to one side because you have to remain absolutely sort of independent in terms of decision. Um, but I think the medical committee of Lourdes is an actually perfect example of how science and faith are intertwined. And... To be sort of scientifically robust the process involves a medical committee decision which as we've spoken about takes years and beyond that then once we've decided that something is an unexpected cure the case is passed back to the church into the spiritual realm for consideration of the patient's bishop or the pilgrim's bishop who can then take it further with um, the within the Catholic Church's roots or at their choice or the pilgrim's choice not to take it further at all. So I think We quite sort of clinically separate the two, although in reality, you know, there's people who get a lot out of it. Both can see the scientific benefits in terms of cure of illness, but also the spiritual elements. And as a doctor as well, and I'm sure a lot of people who go to Lourdes would agree that to have absolute resolution of a serious disease is the gold standard in terms of a cure. But I think able-bodied people as well as sick and disabled also get huge benefit from it in terms of spiritual release and maybe comfort and also sort of a shared awareness and a prioritisation of the sick and disabled in general that, that happens in Lourdes uniquely, I think.
0: Now when I was reading up about all of this I came across the French writer Zola who mm-hmm, I had mm-hmm. studied in my youth yes. but I didn't realise he had actually written a book about yes. Lourdes. However he remained somewhat sceptical Yes, and apparently when shown the crutches hanging up in mm-hmm. the grotto he was asked how could he withhold belief in the miracles of Lourdes yeah. to which he allegedly replied I'll believe it when I see the wooden legs. Yeah, In other words that nobody has ever had a limb replaced or uh-huh. an amputee has never been cured. It
2: hasn't grown back. Well... I mean so that's maybe true in those specific examples Um, and my take on his um, book was that really it sort of seemed like he was absolutely against it and then he became open to the idea and I think that's what happens in a lot of cases where people are kind of want to be against the whole issue but then kind of slowly become convinced by experiences or things they see and it's not necessarily a dramatic cure but in response to what you said about things growing back, the the, men- the man I mentioned earlier, Vittorio Michele, actually had an osteosarcoma of his pelvis. And because of the robustness of this, and this is going back well, that's 50 what years. what an osteosarcoma is so, for the, <laughs> <laughs> the uninitiated. It's a, it's a soft she tumour, but it basically had destroyed um, one side of his hip bone. And also the disease process had started to eat away at the top of his um the top of his leg essentially in the bone at the top of the leg that sort of goes into the hip joint so from x-ray views at that time you can see that there's complete destruction of bone and after his um, experience at Lourdes he actually has demonstrable regeneration of bone both at the femoral head or the top of the femur and in the pelvis itself and you know these Images are available in the Medical Bureau and if people wanted to go and see and it's all well publicised. This guy definitely did have destructive, a destructive process and then subsequently regeneration of bone in a very specific anatomically correct way.
0: Now, as you said, there's been a long connection between Ireland and Lourdes. Are you surprised that there hadn't been an Irish doctor on this committee be up to now?
2: Yes, I think... I was, but I probably wouldn't have scrutinised the membership makeup of it, <laughs> you know, as uh, up until the point that I was approached. I, you know, I would have assumed that it was all functioning perfectly and that it was w- representative of the world. But I think we have to remember that Lourdes is a French shrine and, you know, it, it is predominantly... Um, a French and had been a predominantly French committee. And the current uh, president of the medical bureau, um, who's an Italian guy, Dr. Sandro de um, who's coming over to Ireland next week, he has kind of really looked at it from a point of view of having a committee that represents the people that come to Lourdes. And also the importance of that is that if there was an Irish pilgrim who was to experience an unexpected cure, it's practically very important to have someone who speaks their language and is locally located so that, you know, coordination can be arranged between that person and their normal medical practitioners and experts in the field within Ireland so that the person concerned doesn't have to go to huge inconvenience.
0: Now, you're talking about uh, Dr Francici's coming over here next week because you're trying to formalise that relationship, aren't you, between the Irish medics and Lourdes?
2: That's right. So this was at his request, really, because... His comment initially was that he felt that Ireland was a very important pilgrimage country for Lourdes, and also he said an individual group level it it is highly organised. And you know, I've seen that myself with both the Diocese of and Connor, who I've travelled with, which with the Irish Pilgrimage Trust and different people. It's everyone does it extremely well. But his his point was that he thinks that as a country we could probably integrate better and share both resources in terms of you know medical equipment and lured, that would mean we wouldn't be flying things back and forward unnecessarily, but also um, potentially human resources such as doctors who say they can't get time off at a certain time of the year to go with the diocese they would normally travel with. Then, if there's a shortfall somewhere else, then we could share you know people around and um, try and really serve the sick as well as well as we can.
0: So this is going to be called service.
2: That's right. Yeah.
0: And it's an all-Ireland association?
2: Yep, yep, absolutely. And that's a priority for us, I think, because what we're trying to do is get as many people involved as possible and also be multidisciplinary. So rather than separate Ireland up, um, you know, it'd be better to build strength, bring as many people in as possible, bring nurses in, physiotherapists, pharmacists, and really even people who haven't been delivered before who might just want to know a little bit more about it. It's really the sort of thing that I want to be as all-encompassing as possible. There's something about Lurd that once you enter the gates of the sanctuary comes over you. It's a special feeling of the world put right, whereby the sick and disabled are treated like royalty. And people who have that sort of privilege by the fact that they're not sick or disabled in the normal modern world are going out of their way to help others. And it just strikes you that that ethos is really the way things should be all the time.
0: Well, Dr. Michael Moran, congratulations once again on your appointment. Um, you can find out more about Saravish on the internet. We'll put the details on our website too. And Dr. Moore, Thank you for joining thank us. Thank you very much. And still on the subject of science and religion, this is one of these occasions where I have to confess to being out of my depth. A book has come our way with the intriguing title Time and Relative Dimensions in Faith, Religion and Doctor Who. It's a book of essays edited by Andrew Crome and James McGrath. And on our Christmas programme, I learned that whereas Star Trek devotees are called Trekkies, fans of the BBC's Doctor Who refer to themselves as Whovians. I learned that from self-confessed Whovian and regularly Regular contributor Ben Conroy, who joins us now. So, Ben, what or who is Doctor Who?
3: A bit like trying to explain the appeal of ice cream to an alien from a frozen planet. Doctor Who is one of those things that you almost have to see to believe. When you describe it, it sounds kind of odd. It's about a sort of BBC show. It's been around since 1963. And it's about this sort of eccentric alien who travels throughout all of time and space with his human companions in a spaceship that's bigger on the inside. But what ties it together is this kind of vast sense of wonder at the universe and its its amazingness. And also the the, the character arc of this mercurial, compassionate, hilarious sometimes terrifying figure of the Doctor, this ancient Time Lord, this alien. Now, the show has been, it's, a, it's always been a family show in the true sense of the word.
0: Well, I went through a phase, I have to say, when when it came back in 2005 with David Tennant and uh, Rose. Mm. Um, my son was of that age. So yes. We did watch it for a while, but that's my, my yeah. sole <laughs> experience. Of it. Now, obviously, this book was published last year to mark the 50th anniversary. What's the story with the book?
3: So the book is a series of essays written by a variety of kind of academics, fans of the show, uh, about the show and how it relates to faith, philosophy, the meaning of life, the big questions. Um, now, it's 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 called Time and Relative Dimensions in Faith, which is kind of a little bit of a joke on the name of the Doctor's spaceship, the, the TARDIS, which kind of everyone's heard of. Uh, it stands for Time and Relative Dimensions in Space. So they had a little bit of a pun there. But uh, so the thing about this book is it's very nerdy, but it's also a book that really grapples with ideas, through a a, a popular pop-cultural medium and grapples the ideas in a very, very, very interesting way. I mean, during the the Thatcher era, there's kind of a lot of debate about whether Doctor Who was kind of lampooning Thatcherism um, or not. Uh, One of the points the book makes is that Doctor Who has in itself in modern Britain become uh, a sort of almost a quasi-religion in the sense that I went to the 50th anniversary special screening, which was screened in cinemas not just in Britain but all over the world. But... Within the show itself, it's also just been examining a huge amount of questions that are are relevant and universal, no matter what stage your culture is at. Like, there's a really, really good chapter in it um, by Laura Brecke um, in the book where she talks about, like, what does being human mean? Uh, What is human? There's a bit in an episode from the fourth series since the revival where the Doctor and Donna, his companion, are wandering through this snow-covered planet. And they come across this kind of unpleasant-looking tentacled alien called an Ood which is is kind of dying in the snow and Donna says what's what's wrong with it and the doctor immediately looks at her and says he's a he not an it. Uh, There's a great story as well by a guy called Paul Paul Cornell who I interviewed once uh, a, a believer himself an Anglican but the story was called Human Nature and it's about the time the doctor sheds his time lordness this kind of ancient race he he takes away all the aspects of him that make him a Time Lord, and he to disguise himself as a human and changes his own memories and all this uh, to try and save other people. But uh, you know, aside from the kind of obvious parallels with the Christian story and the incarnation and the limiting of yourself uh, for the good of others, it's a really, really just good look into that same question: what what makes us human? Is the Doctor human as well as being a Time Lord? What can you take away from yourself? What is that? At the core of of being a person, being a, a creature, about some kind of relationship to God, and it's a it's an amazing story because it shows when you strip away you know intelligence and and you know cleverness and abilities and sort of almost extraordinary powers that it's it's goodness and decency and character that are almost the things that are at root.
0: Now, organised religion though takes a bit of a hammering at at various points it does. in the book.
3: Uh, it, yeah, And in the show, too, I mean, you have you have some of the older stories uh, from the classic era where, you know, they seem to be very much told against organized religion. Uh, and you see it in the modern show as well. It, 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 it's clear, as I think it should be clear, that sometimes organized religion can become more about power, about superstition, about unthinkingness. I think if there's one thing Doctor Who is very against in its sort of the philosophy of the show, it's unthinkingness. Um when it comes to the treatment of religion, there's, there's a kind of another side to it as well, uh, which is the, the two guys who've run the show since it came back in 2005 um, are, have both been atheists and a fair few of the other uh, showrunners and writers are atheists as well. But <laughs> you get this interesting thing that happens where religion just keeps coming into the show and these questions of faith keep just coming into the show. And it's actually a theme that the Doctor at one point says, we're all stories in the end, you know, we're all stories. And that's, that's, that's the theme that runs through, that the way we tell stories, the way we make stories of our own lives is hugely, hugely important to, to, to being human, to what that's all about. Um, and I think J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, would have agreed with that. He would have said, you know... His basic line was that we live in a story. I mean that that this this world that we live in here is a myth, the Christian story. That that's a, a huge myth, um, and that he had a famous debate once with C.S. Lewis, who said that a myth, a story, is a lie breathed through silver. Um, and Tolkien said, no, it's not. Myths aren't lies breathed through silver. Myths are true insofar as they're good stories. They're good myths. They are true, and um, because they reflect something about the deepest truths of reality because you know if this if this Christian malarkey is true at all it's going to be true at the root of being and if you're telling a good story if you're telling something that touches the big questions the things that make us human the the, the deepest truths about reality you're going to inevitably whether you like it or not end up bringing in some aspects of this one true myth so and Tolkien called that sub-creating if you create a fantasy world say and it's it rings true. The characters are real. The world seems real. You are actually in, one, in some way imitating God. And so you can't help letting some of that God stuff out, um, even if you don't want to. And I think Doctor Who is a fascinating example of well, that.
0: One of those writers, Russell T Davies, is, is on record as saying it's a very primal instinct, a good one, which is part of our imagination.
3: It is. Um, there's a fascinating story about Russell T Davies. He wrote an episode called Gridlock. And it's about this planet which, in which there's all these kind of slums down at the bottom. And to get out of those slums, you have to join this kind of traffic jam, this sort of flying car traffic jam that lasts for years. And nobody's quite sure what happens when you get out the other side of it. I mean, there's a suggestion that it might not be anything good, but it's a risk that you have to take if you want to get out of this horrible life. So the doctor arrives on this planet and... The people in the cars have this set up this kind of society where they're communicating between their cars and they're sharing stories. And at one point, there's a beautiful moment where they all, at a certain hour of the day, a bit like the Angelus, they all start singing the hymn, Abide With Me. And it's lovely. But so it seems to be a very positive portrayal of religion. So that episode was actually nominated for a thing called the Epiphany Prize, which is, I think, an evangelical Christian award given to works that that portray Christianity in a a favourable, interesting light. And then Russell T. Davies said that he'd actually written that sh- that episode against religion because he said that faith, that kind of unquestioning belief that things will be okay, that, that you know, God's going con- to he- gonna send us help, he said that was keeping the people in the cars paralysed. And it's only when the doctor hears that him and realises no one's coming to help that he starts breaking the rules, he starts, you know, subverting the, the organised religion or the, the certainty and he starts putting in place the things that will save these people.
0: OK, well, fascinating it is. The book is called Time and Relative Dimensions in Faith, Religion and Doctor Who and it's published by Darton, Longman and Todd. Ben, thanks for elucidating on that for us. I'm not <laughs> sure welcome. if we're any the wiser, but it's fascinating all the same.
3: <laughs> Just watch the show, yeah. <laughs> and thanks for joining us. Thank you. You're very welcome.
0: And that's our programme for this week. Our email address is godslot at rte.ie. The phone number is 01 208 2039, and the postal address is the Godslot, RTE Radio 1, Dublin 4. Until the next time, Slaan Ispanacht.